Hi, I'm David Manti, and welcome to a new episode of the Today in Manufacturing podcast. With me today are Jeff Branke and Anna Wells. We each have more than 15 years of experience covering the manufacturing industry. Each week, we take the five most popular stories on our website and discuss the implications they'll have on the manufacturing industry going forward. Before we get started, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You can also help us out a lot by leaving the podcast a positive review on whatever platform you use. Finally, if you want to reach the podcast, you can reach any of us at Jeff, David, or Anna at IEN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. Jeff, how are you doing this week? Awesome. How about yourself? I'm excited. Looking forward to a very low-key weekend. Uh, Anna, you got plans. I got some plans. Going on a trip after this. Super excited. Right? We'll miss you next week. Yeah, I know, guys. I will uh, I will have Andy stand in, and he, he will love it. Does Andy know that yet? He doesn't. Oh, man. That's going to be fun. <laughs> mm-hmm. Andy's generally good at anything different in his day-to-day. <laughs> he embraces it full wholeheartedly. He likes the challenge. Should I wait till Friday morning and then email him? Absolutely. Okay. All Absolutely. Right. I will, I'll do it that way. Right. Yeah. Hey, uh, please hold your heavy sigh, Andy, because here we go. Um, all right. Before we get started with our first story this week, we have a word from our sponsor. Oil Eater's household cleaners, industrial cleaners, and industrial equipment are specifically designed to replace dangerous solvents and are used throughout the world. Our safe water-based formula dissolves grease and grime for almost any surface and leaves a fresh, non-chemical scent. Our ultra-concentrated formulas are perfect for light, medium, or heavy cleaning and can be used on shop floors, in parts washers, to clean equipment, and more. VOC compliant, Oil Eater will do an excellent job in a multitude of applications, safely and cost-effectively, while reducing your chemical usage. Safe for the user, safe for the surfaces being cleaned, and safe for the environment. For more information, visit oileater.com or call 800-528-0334. All right, and we're back. How was the word from our sponsor? Did that do anything for you? I liked it. Anyway, our first story this week, Fukushima, Fukushima quake knocks chip makers offline. On March 16th, just before midnight, a 7.4 magnitude earthquake struck near the Fukushima province in northeast Japan. Several factories were shut down, including Renaissance, Renaissance Electronics, which is responsible for roughly one third of the global supply of chips. Renaissance suspended production at two chip plants and partially shut down another. Two other electronics companies halted their operations, including smartphone parts maker Murata Manufacturing and three Sony manufacturers or three Sony factories. This isn't good news, as components are already selling as fast as manufacturers can make them. Jeff, your thoughts on a natural disaster having an incredible impact on an already strained supply chain? First of all, thank you for clarifying that this is not good news. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I was thinking that appreciate, too. Yeah. Appreciate the heads Normally up Normally you hear good, good news, news yeah. about earthquakes, but yeah. this one. I mean, wait till you get my other hot take on this one. because. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, geez, you take a 7.4 magnitude earthquake, you compound. I mean, that's bad enough in and of itself. Mm-hmm. I think I believe it killed like five people, mm. um, hundreds injured, all that kind of thing. And then also you're looking... You know, with what we focus on primarily, which is manufacturing and supply chain. And obviously, these two areas have already been hit so hard. When you look at the chip makers, they're already having enough struggles with what's going on right now in terms of supply and demand. There's also, because of what's going on in Ukraine, apparently there's a lot of factories in Ukraine that produce the neon Mm. that is required for chip production as well. So that gas that's produced there is also sort of contributing to some of these chip shortages in addition. So sort of the last thing we needed. And then when we look at, there was also two big car manufacturing plants that were, or two companies that had a number of their plants that were also taken offline due to the earthquake with Nissan and Toyota. I believe Toyota projected that they were going to lose about 20,000 cars due to the stoppage, Mm -hmm. which in the global scheme of things is not huge. But when we're looking at the shortage that we're dealing with right now, just with new vehicles on the lots, That is kind of a big deal. Mm -hmm. So just a horrible tragedy from a number of levels and just further reaching ramifications, which is what we've seen throughout the last couple of years. One thing goes down and it's just this trickle effect. It just just seems to keep going and going. The dominoes all fall. Um, There were no casualties at the Renaissance uh, Renaissance, uh, facilities. It's just impossible to say this name without wanting to say Renaissance. It's just like, yeah, yeah, it's Renaissance. Okay. It's uh, it's Renaissance, but you can't say it without your brain saying, no, it's Renaissance. Um, 
and the worst in terms of uh, uh, people getting injured was one employee suffered a minor bruise. And I just thought that was incredible given the scale of all the damage. Mm-hmm. Um, they did say that power has been restored, but the company is still working to assess the condition of the facility as well as any impacts on equipment, products, and clean rooms. Uh, Anna, it sounds like the company is going to be cleaning up for a long time, but it sounds like they're trying to get ramp up production in the areas that it's possible, you know, as soon as possible. Yeah, which is good. But I think we have to look at some of the larger supply chain issues here. I mean, the first thing that got my attention when I saw that that this had happened was obviously the word Fukushima. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's pretty cemented in our minds at this point as to, um, you know, what happened there in, I believe, 2011 when a much more severe earthquake took place and um, the subsequent tsunami mudslides melted down a nuclear plant. Uh, I think some like 20,000 people uh, died in that um, natural disaster and there was a bunch of aftershocks and it was a really horrible situation. So when I saw that there was another earthquake there, I was like, oh, you know, mm-hmm. um, which obviously this, you know, 7.4 that can create severe damage. Um, and initially there was a tsunami warning. And I think the waves f- from that um, reached, they said like eight inches versus what happened in 2011 was like, I don't even remember how many yeah. feet, um, yeah. 30 feet or something crazy. Uh, so that, you know, that earthquake was like something like 500 times stronger than what this one was. Mm-hmm. However, this area is at greater risk for earthquakes than, you know, anywhere else really. I mean, uh, Japan experiences 10% of the earthquakes worldwide. And if you look at that. Wow. I didn't yeah. know, holy cow. I know. And like, look at the landmass um, yeah. relative to that. And that's just insane, you know? Mm-hmm. So experts believe that the risk for Tokyo in particular to experience a powerful earthquake in the next few decades is 47%, um, 54, uh, 46% for Nagoya and 30% for Osaka. So when you think about critical industry, and you look at things like semiconductors, um, I feel like it's pretty irresponsible for us in the West to think that we can just continue to sort of roll the dice here and win every <laughs> mm-hmm. time. You know, I mean, this stuff is expected at this point. Um, yeah. And we know that it has um, or can have an even more catastrophic impact than what happened just, you know, in recent weeks uh, in Fukushima. We've seen it happen before. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I mean, we talk a lot about onshoring of supply chains and semiconductors being more critical industry and the the government trying to put more emphasis on bringing that back here. And I think this just sort of reinforces that point a little bit because, it, again, th- these kind of things are just not going to stop happening. Well, it's, I think we've talked about it previously where there are these new chip plants coming to the states, but we're still really reliant on that global supply chain until those get up and running. And yeah. when disasters like this strike, there's almost... It does reinforce the point that what we're doing is correct, but you just can't you can't make it happen any faster. Well, and it makes me wonder. I mean, that's like those are some amazing stats that Anna just threw out there in terms of how frequent those earthquakes hit that those areas. Um, you know, one of the things that the pandemic and this other craziness that's gone over the gone on over the last couple of years, it's made companies look at their contingency planning or their continuity planning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you kind of wonder for those chip makers if doing some of those reshoring activities and bringing it here wasn't part of that plan True. in looking at just what's going on in some of these different areas. We've had how many stories talking about maritime disasters and stuff coming over on boats. So you wonder if part of the part of the planning process or things that have opened up is not just the efficiencies and the benefits from making stuff here, but just the avoidance yeah. of a lot of these potential horrible um, events. I'm I'm sure that has to play a role in it yeah. because it's just it's just smarter business. Uh, and Anna, the waves about. 10 years ago, a little over 10 years ago, were more than 13 meters high. That is yeah, it's like incredible. 40 feet. Yeah. Wow. Uh, anyway, I had to look that up because I just couldn't let that one stay. Mm-hmm. All right. Our next most popular story this week, Kawasaki is making a robot goat. At the 2022 IREX International Robot Exhibition in Tokyo, Kawasaki Heavy Industries showed off two humanoid robots and a robot goat. The first was the RHP Kaleido. Standing six feet tall and weighing 182 pounds, it can carry 132 pounds in each arm. Kaleido is nimble and while slow, only walks about three miles per hour, it can be used in high altitude maintenance situations like towers or wind turbines. 
The second humanoid was the RHP Friends, a little smaller than Kaleido with a warmer presence and a potential fit in elder care. Finally, the GOAT. It's a four-legged and four-wheeled robot Kawasaki calls the RHP Bex. The Bex can carry up to 220-pound payloads and navigate uneven terrain. During the demonstration, the Bex carried cargo and even people. Anna, the idea is to use it in everything from field work and agriculture to plant inspection. Now, if safety personnel and plants start riding around in robot goats, it's just going to make a more fun workplace. <laughs> yeah, I think goat in this case stands for greatest of all time, but also goat. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, no, it's like the best goat robot I've ever seen, which is compared to no other goat robots, but... Mm-hmm. I don't know. It like <laughs> you had an opportunity there to say not greatest of all time, but greatest of all transportation. Just saying. That's true. I'm just got a major list of goat robots. Yeah. Because I'm sure that's extensive and number one incredible. and number a hundred. It's <laughs> every number. Um <laughs> the, I don't know, the two hundred and twenty pound payload like isn't very much. Mm-hmm. So you kind of wonder like how they'll need to price this thing in order to make it work. Because to me, like the lower the p- payload like really you're getting into some more niche applications there probably mm-hmm. um you can get up to 220 pretty fast and my understanding is that even if like you're riding it that's 220 is max yeah. so like yeah you could ride it and then carry like a bag of taco bell or whatever and then that's <laughs> that's it yeah um but i have to say that i don't think i care like i want i i want this thing based on its style alone like we covered um robotics a lot right and we've covered other animal-like robots. Yeah, the like robot dog. The robot dog phenomenon. Which is just like a rectangular box with legs. Yeah, like Spot and Spot Mini. Like, mm-hmm. um, those don't look like dogs. No. So, I don't know. And they do not elicit any kind of dog feelings. They're actually like terrifying. They're like horror dogs. But <laughs> They're this, straight out of Stranger Things. That's yes, what they remind me of. Yeah. yeah. I totally agree. And this, like, this goat, like, has these really cute, like, LED... Mm-hmm. lights and it's got like actual horns and an actual face and um i did see that kawasaki wants to add humanoid arms to it oh no so don't do that no. please um they already have humanoid robots i know leave the goats alone I leave the goats alone exactly <laughs> but i don't know so i look forward to seeing it utilized um the uneven terrain thing is cool i think that yeah. that actually could be a valuable application but it's in terms of like it hauling stuff around or whatever. I'm not exactly sure. Like, you know, maybe like a garden center or something. You, yeah. Like little seed packets or something. I don't know. <laughs> it's it's not a lot of cargo. It uh, makes you wonder if they could increase that payload to make it usable in other applications. Uh, Jeff, your thoughts on the robot goat and its potential? Well, the three they rolled out. First of all, they, they still have to work on the humanoid robots because those two are still pretty creepy looking. Yeah. yeah. Especially the one they had pushing the wheelchair. That was not <laughs> the, calming. The ponytail, the fake was, ponytail is what gets me. Oh, yeah, that was too much. Mm-hmm. But the the ibex, and actually, have you ever seen an ibex like the actual picture of everyone? Yeah, they're awesome looking animals. Like I thought it was a deer at first. Mm-hmm. Didn't realize technically a goat. Up. It's called it. An oh, ibex. Oh, that yeah. you, the goat one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it looked like when I first saw it, I thought it was a deer. But mm-hmm. I, and I think as far as the payload goes, I totally get the the concerns there. My first thought was more like search and rescue mm-hmm. type situations, oh, yeah. being able to haul supplies up to people, get into awkward areas, things like that, especially when you're looking in bad weather. Yeah. Uh, I think it could be a, an awesome fit. And it did look actually, I don't know, it didn't look clunky. It looked very smooth in the way it was moving and carrying that small person on its back yeah, and, yeah. and stuff. So it was very impressive overall. Also, I just want to say this was once was sort of the anchor segment of engineering by design. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other stories in there I thought were great too and definitely worth checking out, especially the CRISPR one. Um, oh, yeah. I thought that was really interesting. So mm-hmm. sort of diverging from what we're mainly talking about. but No, how they can use uh, gene editing technology to basically fight addiction. Crazy. Yeah. Worth checking out. Yeah. The other thing that I kind of thought about in going through this, because we just had these other all these other stories. We have a couple more coming up here still talking about automotive and chip shortage and all that kind of stuff. Robotics is another area that is definitely feeling the pinch of all of the, the mm-hmm. lack of chips in the supply chain. And the biggest thing that I kind of wonder is when you look at – Further down the line, they can develop these things in ones and twos as sort of prototypes, but actually getting it into mass production is going to be a huge issue going oh, yeah. forward because of the chip shortages. And I wonder which is going to play a bigger role in sort of allowing this technology to continue to grow and evolve and get into the mainstream if it is going to be something like a supply chain issue on robotics and the chips or just the fact that they cannot get these human 
humanoid robots to look mm-hmm. reassuring or calming in any no. way. No, I mean, it's I mean, we sell the humanoid robots that Tesla is working on and we're going to see more humanoid robots in industrial applications. It's just whether or not they're going to look like a nightmare train or be somewhat warm. I mean, the one that looked okay to me was uh, actually Kaleido looked a little bit more approachable is Agreed. what I was looking for was than the of, one for elder care. Sort of transformer-like. <laughs> approachable. Um, yeah. Well, it is. It's. I mean, uh, right now it's Cobots and, then, uh, you know, other sort of uh, very industrial-looking automation that we see in facilities. Mm-hmm. But we're going to see, it's inevitable that we will see more humanoid robots in these applications. And for some of them, like uh, we used to have friends that worked on towers and uh, my cousins used to work on wind turbines. And it's, you know, based on their experiences while they were cool, it wasn't really a long-term play. Like if they could be replaced by a humanoid robot, they would gladly do that. And that is one of the applications for Kaleido, right? Right, yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, these really extreme uh, areas where you're putting a human in danger uh, you know, another one that would be really cool is if they made an underwater one for all the underwater maintenance and repair that has to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we ran a video where it was just one of those maintenance workers on a cell tower wearing like a, a helmet cam. Yeah. I think we ran that like three or four years ago. Mm-hmm. I got nauseous just watching mm-hmm. that. Oh, yeah. I could not handle it. So you'd think, yeah, those guys would be more than happy to, to let a machine do the work. Um, for uh, reader Jonathan Williams that reached out. Uh, no, uh, the robot goats are not yet capable of clearing vines or eating invasive plant species. Although, if they could get it to do that, that'd be amazing, too. <laughs> that would be incredible. Like, uh, one of the most popular things my neighborhood has done in the last five years is bring goats in to eat invasive species. And it's just been... Your neighborhood brought goats in? Oh, yeah. Our neighborhood association brought in goats to clear out parks. Yeah. And uh, so they just fence in the park, let the goats go, and then everyone just kind of... That's where all the families hang out, like eat lunch, take walks, watching the goats. I, That's awesome. I spent days, you know, I brought part of the reason <laughs> I didn't go more insane during the pandemic was I had my goats. Just like taking a goat break with the kids. I'll be gone. <laughs> <laughs> be gone for hours. Um, uh, Jeff, talking about the other segments, we are going to see more and more designs like this inspired by nature. One of the other segments in uh, this en- episode of Engineering by Design was the bird bot which was uh, a robot based off of ostrich legs, which are kind of descended from Tyrannosaurus Rex legs. And I just think it's cool when we find inspiration in nature to do things more efficiently. You know, mm-hmm. we always try and yeah. over-engineer things and maybe we should look in other places. Um, no word on the cost of the goat yet. That seems, it seems like a pricey item. <laughs> Worth it. Um, and the other thing is, you know, we do flying cars and other uh, things that transform at least going from goat to like an ATV was the most realistic of transformations. Oh yeah, it was not I've that seen. dramatic, and it, it like it made sense. Yeah, and mechanically the mm-hmm. way it moved. Yeah, yeah, totally. it just drops onto wheels. I'm like, yeah. that's so much better than like folding wings up and around and wrapping them in the back. They needed some sort of sound effects though, like. Oh yeah, and their their music choice was just phenomenal. Uh, the Kaleido demonstration to Bon Jovi's, uh, what was it? Uh, we're halfway there. Or I'm not going to. Living on a prayer. Living on a prayer. Yes. Thank you, Anna. Wow. Just up there fixing those. What were you doing <laughs> in towers. the late 80s? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Our next most popular story this week. Worker injured in molten plastic accident. On September 23rd, 2021, a Barry Global employee was changing a screen on a plastic bag extruder when the worker was sprayed with hot liquid plastic and suffered severe burns. This week, OSHA hit the repeat offender with some $370,000 in penalties. During the investigation, OSHA found that the plastic packaging manufacturer could have prevented the injuries at its Sterling, Massachusetts plant had the company complied with lockout-tagout protocols and provided proper personal protective equipment. In the last five years, OSHA has inspected various Barry Global locations more than 40 times. Anna, these inspections included fatalities in New Jersey and Wisconsin related to lockout-tagout violations. One of the thing when we run these safety stories, Anna, one of the things that I find most frustrating is when people uh, companies get put into what OSHA calls the severe violator program, and when there are repeat offenders, because especially when there are tragedies like fatalities and people getting severely injured, I f- I feel like that's a moment that 
the company could maybe really turn a corner when it comes to safety. Yeah. And it's so often lockout tagout. Like, yeah. why is this so hard for people to get their head around? Because the consequences of not complying with proper lockout tagout procedures is severe injury, often death, electrocution, mm. severe burns. I mean, there's just so much that can happen there. It's terrifying. People getting limb, losing limbs because the machine starts while they're working on it. Like, it's just that the importance of that by itself cannot be stressed enough. And then I think when you look at this industry, which is uh, melted plastic, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we think like plastics are everywhere, right? But I read a, a report on the projected growth of the plastic injection molding market recently. Okay. Because I'm super cool. Yeah. Like that. yeah. <laughs> Some bad time reading there. <laughs> just, just right before bed. Um, But anyway, the report was talking about how much room for growth there actually is there because of um, obviously like plastic packaging. And then in this case, that's being that was actually what the application was that caused this accident. But also like automotive because of all the components are being replaced that were metal Mm. are being replaced with plastic because they're lighter and they help with fuel efficiency requirements um, to cut weight on the vehicle. And then also some of them stand up to corrosion a little bit better. Mm. So um you know, the report was talking about like how much actual like phenomenal growth we're going to see in like people just producing more plastic components. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when you're dealing with stuff like that, like melting plastic, not just the heat dangers, but there's like toxic fumes that come along with that. You know, people can get very sick very quickly if they're mm-hmm. not wearing the right PPE. So to see that Barry Plastics, who is a plastics company, mm-hmm. they know exactly what they're doing here is not providing the proper PPE in this case. Um, I mean, because it said that if if this person had been wearing a face shield, a welding jacket, or leg protection, mm-hmm. that this injury would not have been, you know, so... Nearly as severe. Severe, right. Yeah. So why is he not decked out in protective gear? They know how plastic production should work. I mean, mm-hmm. that they're a plastics company. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It's very frustrating, to your point, that, you know, at what point does OSHA just say, that's enough um, because, you know, you would just wonder like this, this stuff should be basic for them. And why, why are they not doing it? Right. Uh, Jeff, some of these extruders operate at 750 degrees Fahrenheit or 400 degrees C and above. That is just incredibly hot. It is. And to echo a lot of what Anna was saying, this is a culture issue. That's mm-hmm. why these things continue to happen. The lockout tagout stuff that does come down to an individual performing Mm-hmm. correctly. That's a training concern there for it to happen repeatedly though. And for there to be a lack of PPE at yeah. this, this company, that is a company issue. That is a culture issue. Mm-hmm. We've seen much, much smaller companies have a much stronger focus on safety and it pays off. This is an $11 billion company. They are 260 on the fortune 500 list. This mm-hmm. is a massive enterprise. Wow. They employ almost 50,000 people around the world. Mm-hmm. There is no excuse mm-hmm. for them to after 40 visits from OSHA on an, in a year mm-hmm. for them to have these types of issues still arise. Yeah. Individual lost his life in one of their other incidents. Yeah. I mean, for these things to continue to happen at an enterprise of this size and scale, it just it's such a head shaker to me because the resources are there. Right. And we continue to see the onus that's placed on the value of workers, how difficult it is to attract and retain a quality workforce. Mm-hmm. And when these types of things are making headlines, as opposed to all the other positive things that you could be doing in an industry that Anna just described, it's got all of this room for growth and potential and positive things that are coming out that they could be talking about to have this type of safety record sort of hanging as an anchor around their company's growth potential mm-hmm. is really, it's just, it's hard to understand. Like, mm-hmm. it's, it's, I don't know. Is part of the issue that, you know, OSHA doesn't have enough teeth to really, you know, make any change happen? Because so uh, one of the the worker who died in New Jersey was a 46 year old person who died while adjusting a printing press in July 2017, and then October 2020, a 54 year old worker died from a head, head injury at a plant in Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin. Now in Wisconsin, Barry is contesting the investigation and the about forty one thousand dollars in fines that OSHA proposed. In New Jersey, the company faced an initial penalty of $77,000, but settled it for $32,000. Now, Jeff, when you're talking about an $11 billion company and they settle down to a $32,000 fine, is that even worth their time? Well, that's the problem here with the OSHA fines, right? First of all, they're not scalable based on company size, Mm -hmm. and they should be. 
for both the positive and the negative. For a bigger company like this, they should be higher. For smaller companies that make legitimate mistakes or don't have the same training resources, they should be smaller so they can learn without going out of business, right. essentially. Right. So there's the biggest issue. The other thing is you just mentioned that was just, that one fine was just cut in half because they couldn't negotiate it. Mm-hmm. So what's the bigger takeaway there when you're sitting down in the boardroom? Yeah. Well, you know, the bad news is we got fined 70 grand. The good news is David came through and got it knocked down to 30. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what are they going to talk about? The initial violation or the fact that it was knocked down by that much? Yeah. That's what they're going to be talking about. Yeah. So those are the problems. It's, it, is, it is not that OSHA doesn't have teeth. It's that they need to scale them. Yeah. (laughs) They need bigger teeth. (laughs) They need bigger teeth for bigger people. Yeah. No. And I mean, and while it was, so this new uh, penalty is substantial. It's $370,000 about in uh, penalties. But I get so used to looking at uh, the OSHA website to see what the initial penalty was. Yeah. And then what it actually winds up being Mm -hmm. paid. So, and I, whenever I see that, I just hope that it's, you know, corrective action was taken. But you know, sometimes with repeat offenders, that would be a bit too optimistic to believe that happened. Mm-hmm. All right, let's move on to our next most popular story. Our second most popular story this week, thieves hit Stellantis in a smash and grab. Stellantis factory storage lots in the Detroit area have been hit with a wave of thefts. More than a dozen vehicles have gone missing, including Challenger Hellcats, Ram pickups, and a Jeep Ch- Grand Cherokee Trackhawk. Thieves appear to be sneaking into privately owned storage lots and escaping with the vehicles by ramming them through the gates. One ram even smashed into a semi-truck on its way out. Some of these vehicles are worth close to six figures each. These lots already have heavy security, a heavy security presence, but will now have additional police patrols over the coming weeks. Anna Stellantis won't comment on the investigation And I just can't believe, you know, sometimes we talk about really smart, sophisticated crimes on this podcast, and it's good to see that the old smash and grab is still in business. The old smash and grab. (laughs) It's in business, and business is good because, uh, sorry. No, that was great. No, no. just pause for a second. Uh, No, really, it's insane how much this has happened to Stellantis in particular. Uh, if you look back on the last several years, they've had these same type of robberies um, multiple times, mm-hmm. multiple lots. Um, in 2018, there was a rash of these and the police revealed at that time that they had a theory that this was uh, an inside job. Mm-hmm. They said it is probably an employee because they seem to know where they're going, what they're looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as I know, no one was ever arrested for that. So I... <laughs> I don't know. Fast forward to now, I guess. And you think that these secure storage lots would maybe start to change their approach. But what I read in one article was that um, most of these lots, they keep the keys inside the vehicles because they move them so much. Mm -hmm. Um, And I assume they don't stay very long on these storage lots. Uh, But I just want to say that I don't think that that is working. No. Uh, no. (laughs) Clearly, these thieves are willing to like smash through a locked gate. And I don't think a security guard (laughs) can really do much about that when you already have a tens of thousands of pounds vehicle um, with the keys in the ignition and you're speeding out out the door. I'm sure he could go and shake a flashlight angrily at them. I know. It's like, you know what might slow them down actually is putting the keys somewhere else <laughs> is what I would do. And I know it might not be as efficient uh, for those moving those vehicles around. But if you look at the cost and you had mentioned um, like most of these vehicles are worth like six figures, you yeah, know? So, yeah. you know, 10 of them, 12 of them have been stolen so far this year. Let's go a couple years back and add that up. Mm-hmm. This is millions of dollars of product that has been stolen I think, like, maybe it's worth changing the strategy here. Well, and Jeff, I mean, word is out that the keys are in these vehicles. Word's out. Well, it's not even that complicated. To be honest, you you talk about it being a smash and grab, and it sort of is. But again, we're seeing sort of a convergence of factors here. One of Two things that we've talked a ton about here in the last six months or so is obviously all the issues with the automotive supply chain and cybersecurity on the uptick. Mm-hmm. There's people have more time to be doing nefarious things online. More things are becoming more connected. These vehicles are part of that mix. Okay. So first of all, we've got vehicle prices going through the roof. So mm-hmm. for whatever they're listed at, whatever they're going to sell them for, they're making better than they would have done a year ago or the last time that all of these, mm-hmm. these thefts took place. The other thing is basically, according to Auto Evolution, as well as some local news sites in and around Detroit, 
They're using a tablet and some software to break into these cars and start them. They don't even need the keys. So they have figured out a way to hack into these cars and drive off. Now, driving them through a gate may hurt some of that resale value. So I'm not sure. Only on the first one, The first one's a sacrifice. Yeah. Yeah. Take a bad one. And these have been going on since October. Yeah. And these things have been going on since October. So it does it just doesn't make a convergence. Again, these cyber criminals have had time to figure more stuff out because things were shut down for a while. And they're picking some pretty cool vehicles. Do you see the Skyhawk? I was not, or excuse me, the track uh, hawk. the Trackhawk. Yeah. I was not familiar with that vehicle. That thing is amazing. Yeah. It's faster than the Hellcat. Oh, really? 700 Jeep, horsepower. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it is. Yeah. I get it. It's I know why they went after that one. Yeah. Well, it's one of the things I thought about with the story is you hear 15 cars being stolen within the last year. You hear that, you know, that's past uh, month, right? Past, or sorry. Yeah. Past month. That's about $1.5 million in value. And mm-hmm. It does seem that is jarring, but then you look at the drone footage of these lots and there are hundreds of vehicles out there. And I was wondering, is this more of a headache right now than a serious problem? I get that. That's a tremendous, you know, just, I mean, cost of doing business. Well, not the cost of doing business, but you know, if they, uh, they lose 15. Well, I think it is a big deal, but I think maybe this bleeds into another issue, which is just hiring people to be there. I mean, who knows how many security guards they had walking around before. They're probably not going to disclose the fact that, you know, we had about 100 guys before, and now we're down to maybe 50. Mm -hmm. Um, That could be an issue as well with some of these lots and their security. Well, looking at the footage of the fence that was essentially driven through and the simple, I mean, we weren't looking at state-of-the-art security on these lots. Yeah, You know, it was, uh, so that's why I was wondering if maybe... Maybe it's not that big of an issue to them because otherwise they would ramp up security. I don't know. It just, I think it has to be, though. It's not a good look. I even, mean, it's even just, if it's not just the number, you're right. Yeah. 10, 15 cars, not yeah. a big deal. The fact that it makes headlines like this, that's exactly. Like yeah. it just doesn't look good. And I don't think it like deters people when they continue to get away from it. <laughs> <laughs> well, this, it also gives me, you know, faith in some of the bad television I sometimes watch. And I'm like, you can't just walk in and steal the car. <laughs> what a like lazy plot mechanism. False. And then this comes <laughs> out and you're like, no, that's really all they do. Oh, yeah. you just ram through the gate. It's just like a just like a padlock on there. I yeah, think. yeah, yeah. They really just cut the padlock off and ram it through the gate. Okay. Nicholas Cage was ahead of his time. That's right. Hey, that was... The original's better. All right. <clears throat> Our top story this week. Boeing 737 crashes with 132 aboard. A China Eastern Boeing 737-800 had 132 people on board when it crashed in a remote area of southern China on Monday. The crash set off a forest fire in the mountainous area that was visible from space. The cause is unknown, but at least one black box has been recovered. Flight 5735 was at 29,000 feet when it went into a dive and about an hour, about an hour into its flight. The plane plunged to 7,400 feet before regaining about 1,200 feet and then dived again. Confirming the cause of the plane crash can take years. It was a Boeing 737-800 that crashed, not the Boeing 737 MAX that was temporarily grounded after deadly crashes in Indonesia and Ethiopia. The 737-800 is a twin-engine, single-aisle plane commonly used for short- and medium-haul flights. The plane has been flying since 1998 and has an excellent safety record, according to officials. After this week's crash, China Eastern grounded all of its 737-800s. Jeff, they have been involved in 22 accidents since 1998, but they have flown in more than 116 million flights. Still, a deadly accident like this is just tragic. Yeah. I mean, a horrible situation. And I think where it took place in such a sort of remote area Mm -hmm. of China. So you're looking at China as well, who doesn't have a reputation for releasing a lot of information when things like this happen within Mm -hmm. their, happens within their borders. So it's going to be a while before we really know Mm -hmm. what happened here based on those two factors, which is frustrating for everyone involved. Um, It's frustrating, obviously, for those families who are looking for their loved ones. And it's also really... Not not on the same level in any way, shape, or form as 123 people losing their lives. But man, it is it really hits Boeing too. I mm-hmm. mean, when you think about the impact that this is going to have on them, first of all, because they're not going to know the results for so long. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it gives people, kind of like us, a lot of time to talk about here's another incident with Boeing. Mm-hmm. Looking historically, I mean, this is a company two years ago, they were their stock was about 330 bucks a share. It's almost half of that now. I mean, mm-hmm. they've just been going through a hard time that way. And also you know, when you look, 
the NTSB put out some numbers since they've been putting out since 1982 in terms of aviation fatalities by make. Mm-hmm. Boeing has the most fatalities, or excuse me, second most of, of um, any vehicle or any, excuse me, any plane makers um, during that time. Almost four times as many as Airbus. Who's uh, who's in first? Uh, Cessna. So a lot oh. of those, obviously, oh, you know, yeah. smaller no. yeah. um, private pilots mm-hmm. and things like that. There's a lot more of those incidents. But when you look at the number of fatality, almost 8,000, over 8,000 people have died in Boeing planes since well, 1982. My goodness. Um, so those are horrible numbers. Obviously, mm-hmm. you know, we just talked about a company um, with Barry that has a safety culture concern. We know how big Boeing is. We know the scale is not the same. But boy, when you look at that and you look at where they rank and compared, compared to their peers, there has to be some additional alarms going off. And it's unfortunate that maybe it took this long for it to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, this is also a company, obviously, that has a ton of aerospace and military contracts that they're involved in. It's a huge, huge company. So passenger aircraft is not the only product that they've got to focus on. But it seems like either whether it's from a maintenance perspective, um, initial quality controls, whatever it is, mm-hmm. Boeing has some Things they need to take care of. I was going to say damage control. That's, yeah. I mean, they've, you know, it's, uh, they've had, and there have been other scandals with Boeing. It seems like maybe they are a little too cozy with regulators and maybe regulators like the FAA give them a little bit too much leeway when yeah. they're sort of regulating themselves. Yeah. Um, we also saw uh, pilots, uh, test pilots that were recently on trial as a result of faking um, and lying on reports from test flights. Um, Anna, it's unfortunate that it's a Boeing 737 anything, you know, a 737-800, because now you just think Boeing 737 and it's like, I don't want to fly on it. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Um, I'm not sure we're going to see the same kind of backlash as we saw with the MAX. Mm-hmm. And obviously there's some reasons for that. Um, you described it earlier about just the frequency with, with the, which this plane is actually used. Yeah, it has a good historical record. Right. And it's it's described as like the workhorse plane mm-hmm. of of so many fleets. Right. And there are more than forty five hundred in service worldwide. It's the most common plane that's used for commercial airline travel. So while we wait to hear what's on that black box, which, as you said, could take years, mm-hmm. um, you know, the question, I guess, is, yeah, will it discourage travelers? And I think it's hard to say, but universally grounding the max was an easier choice for regulators because, the Max was kind of a new plane. Right. There were two back-to-back crashes, but but not to mention that they could do that without tanking like the entire airline industry. Yeah. And in this case, this is the most common plane. It is unclear what caused the crash. I mean, my guess is that regulators and travelers are going to kind of take a beat and just take a wait-and-see approach because the... <laughs> I don't know, because because we don't know. And and honestly, like if, if they did ground all these planes, I know that Eastern China Airlines did ground them for maintenance and safety checks, but they are the only airliner that I'm aware of that has done so. Mm-hmm. Um, and Boeing, I think, will appreciate the benefit of the doubt here as the investigation goes on, because obviously they can't afford to just go headfirst into another scandal, as Jeff mentioned. I mean, they've, the last few months, I think, have been relatively quiet for them. Um, you mentioned the engineer, I think, were you talking about the one that was acquitted? Yeah. 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 So, you know, he was acquitted of, of, you know, duping the FAA. Mm -hmm. He's accused of that, but, um, he was found not guilty. And I think the subtext there is that it's because nobody told him that they had (laughs) changed the software. So that, you know, the problem was within Boeing, but you don't see that in the headline. Right. So I don't think Boeing necessarily took another PR hit there when that case was finally um ruled but um yeah i don't know I, like so i'm curious w- with this data jeff like the 8000 do they account for like the market share i mean like like if boeing has you know what i mean like as yeah. a percentage of flights flown like they didn't they didn't go into that and break it down boeing is by has the most planes in the air okay mm-hmm. it's bigger than airbus by quite a bit even that's probably its biggest competitor mm-hmm. um so there is a scalability factor there for yeah. sure yeah it's just when these things repeatedly happen to the point where you are such a prominent name in this industry you you would think there would even be more focus and i don't think it's just even when it comes off the line it's also making sure whoever's operating those planes knows how to maintain them properly i think when we look at a lot of this and the damage that it has on boeing i'll be honest when i'm getting on a plane I don't look at what type of plane it is. Maybe mm-hmm. I should, but I don't. I tell you who does, though. 
um, investors. They mm-hmm. definitely are aware of all this stuff going on with Boeing mm-hmm. when they have other options. Military contractors are looking at this stuff and understand what they have going on because if they're going to announce a big deal and they're doing it with somebody who's just had another plane crash, that isn't maybe the type of limelight they want to put that um, that new contract or that new partnership in. Mm-hmm. The other person that's going to look at this a lot is obviously the airlines. They're going to understand, okay, if I go with Boeing, maybe it's the best plane right now. Maybe it's the best deal. But you know what? They've got four times as many fatalities as Airbus does. Mm -hmm. Maybe I want to go over here instead this time. Mm -hmm. I think that's where Boeing has to worry the most in terms of working with those types of customers um, and just sort of the, again, the attention, the unwanted attention that they're getting right now. So in 2019, the FAA did order inspections on 38 Boeing 737 planes, which included some of the 737-800s because they were finding cracks in parts uh, that connect the wings to the fuselage. But the investigation didn't wind up grounding any planes. But there has been, you know, a history of potential red flags out there. Uh, and overall, this just sounds like a terrible situation, not just the families waiting at the airport and the hundreds of people that are searching this remote countryside in the rain, trying to find anything that can be used to try and figure out a cause. I mean, Searchers are using hand tools, metal detectors, drones, and dogs to try and find anything in this heavily forested area with steep slopes. And so far, they've only found wallets, identity, and bank cards. And, uh, you know, some human remains have been found as well. But it just sounds like this could be a very long process Mm -hmm. and maybe not working with a lot of evidence. It seems it could be very frustrating. All right. Before we move on to In Case You Missed It This Week, we have another word from our sponsor. Oil Eater's household cleaners, industrial cleaners, and industrial equipment are specifically designed to replace dangerous solvents and are used throughout the world. Our safe water-based formula dissolves grease and grime for almost any surface and leaves a fresh, non-chemical scent. Our ultra-concentrated formulas are perfect for light, medium, or heavy cleaning and can be used on shop floors, in parts washers, to clean equipment, and more. VOC compliant, Oil Eater will do an excellent job in a multitude of applications, safely and cost-effectively, while reducing your chemical usage. Safe for the user, safe for the surfaces being cleaned, and safe for the environment. For more information, visit oileater.com or call 800-528-0334. And we're back with In Case You Missed It. The stories that maybe weren't as popular on the website this week, but still stand to make a big impact on the industry going forward. I'll go first this week, guys, if that's okay with you. Sounds good. All right. The story I chose this week was about Lockheed Skunk Works that's going to host same-day hiring events. What is Lockheed Skunk Works? It's basically the part of the company that makes all the cool stuff. Oh, okay. So they make all the futuristic aircraft technology that will eventually be on planes, but it's a cool gig. Ah, yes. So- like everyone else, Lockheed Martin's Skunk Works division needs workers. The aerospace giant is now holding hiring events on Monday, April, or April, Monday, March 28th in Valencia, California, and Tuesday, March 29th in Lancaster, California. They're going to conduct interviews and are looking to hire people on the spot for positions in engineering, production, manufacturing, maintenance, and other critical positions. Now, this is what I found the most interesting. The signing bonuses can reach up to $50,000. Whoa. That is incredible. I was, you know, I was uh, playing in my uh, old man card game that I like to talk about, where it's a bunch of people from the family, a lot of us in manufacturing in one way or another. And I brought this up and it's just, everyone's like, man, we're trying to hire people with, you know, flexible hours (laughs) and, (laughs) you know, other fringe benefits. And I'm like, yeah, they're just going for the 50K. It's so depending on when you're listening to this podcast, (laughs) if you are qualified, get to Valencia, get to California, friends. And it's, you know, we've seen people giving away houses. We've seen people giving away cars. And it is, I mean, the more we see stories like this, it's just getting really competitive for people with skill sets in engineering and manufacturing. And I don't see a sign of it slowing. Mm -mm. It's, it can't. You know, <laughs> no. still, still continue to need people. I think it would be interesting here. I mean, with a, with a company like Lockheed, um, that is a huge number. Oh, obviously, yeah. I wonder what they were doing before, though, because I think they were always sort of raising the bar in terms of because they want the best of the best. They want those MIT grads and stuff like that. So there was probably when you can. It's actually more impressive when you consider what it probably was before. Mm-hmm. It was exponentially more. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah, they've really 
amped up their game a bit. Yeah. And I'm sure that it's, it scales based on whatever the position is and uh, you know, the qualifications, but I mean, I feel, I just imagine this room of people saying we need bodies. What's it going to take? And it's just like, <laughs> give them 50 G's. Like, bring bring mm-hmm. the suitcases of cash. Right. You get 50 K and access to futuristic aircraft to use at your leisure, whatever you need. How big of a selling point would it be if they actually had a suitcase full of cash right there for you to sign up? Oh, like just man. like pop mm-hmm. it open. Just yep. to televise it, spin it around. You want it? Sign the line. Mm-hmm. Sign on the dotted line. Smell the money. Uh, I like this. <laughs> no, it's uh. And I just any opportunity to kind of talk about Skunk Works because um, it's always been um, it's a breath of fresh air. Thank you. It is. It is. Uh, I like the smell of this one. No, it's made me. It was like uh, before there was Tesla and SpaceX. This was the cool company that people wanted to go work for. Um, Or at least the ones that I've talked to. Um, Jeff, what is your in case actually before that? Would you guys like, would uh, you be enticed by a $50,000 signing bonus? What? Yes. But I mean, like, (laughs) was that a real question? Like, Uh, I mean, obviously it depends on the job, but yes, (laughs) it would be nice. Okay. But what if one was offering you 40 and one was offering you 50? Which one would you choose? But you like the one with the lower amount better or something. I don't know. Like what, how much would it, how much more would it take? To get you to take a job, you're on the on the fence. About. I would I would take the job that I wanted. Yeah, you know what I mean. Because you, I mean, that's risky territory to just follow the money and yeah, see see what happens. Maybe if I was 25, you know, yeah. but like not now. We've all had bad jobs and know how they can be a life suck. Oh, so, just kill you inside. Yeah, yeah, that signing bonus only goes so far in terms of quality of life. Yeah, it's just. But you know what. We bought that Tesla. Yep. I get Starbucks every day now. Yeah, I cry so. inside, but it's okay because <laughs> the bank's flush. Um, all right. Well, sorry for the ridiculous hypothetical. Of course, people would be attracted by $50,000. Do you like money? Yeah. yeah. I don't know what Anna's reaction was more strongly about, like, my bad joke about skunk works or you asking if she would like fifty grand. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's just, it's nice to talk about because it's not something with, you know, people with English majors typically ever flirt with just like what is this <laughs> yeah, signing bonus not you a talk problem about? that i've encountered i had to pay for my first few jobs all right <laughs> jeff what is your in case you missed it this week i'm glad your negotiation skills have improved over time yeah. no no i'll pay you guys <laughs> i need a byline so for my in case you missed it i decided to go way off track and talk about something we don't discuss very much supply chain issues oh, oh yeah. yeah so Reach. a couple actually a couple of different stories hit and i thought they were both kind of interesting for the same type of reasons the first one if you remember uh, zte they are a chinese smartphone and networking company um, basically they were banned by the trump and trump administration from working with any u.s suppliers mm-hmm. so for what they needed they needed our chips and processors and things like that they were cut off their business was hurting horrifically well that ban has expired so now that does open up lines of commerce between ZTE, which is partly state-owned, which is part of the concerns. There's a lot of security um, issues there that the Trump administration was was worried about. Well, that has expired. So now those companies that were working with ZTE in the U.S. are going to be able to start working with them again. ZTE is obviously the biggest beneficiary of this because their supply chain was very limited mm-hmm. in terms of who they could source from. So it almost put them out of business. Um, the other one was the U.S. Has, uh, decided to lift tariffs on UK-based steel products. This was one that a lot of people were sort of not sure about um, when it went down because they didn't. There wasn't a real clear connection between what the benefits were going to be here. Um, I think the Trump administration was encouraged when a lot of those U.S. steel companies started. Oh, we're going to start building new plants and investing internally on U.S. steel. That didn't work out so great. Mm. So in both of these cases, I guess what it sees to me is. We're making adjustments to supply chain to try to help things get back to normal Mm -hmm. a little bit. We've been dealing with inflation on pretty much every level you could imagine. Hopefully some of these things opening up will help with that. In terms of the economic impact overall for the U.S., I don't think either one of these things is going to have a negative impact, obviously. With ZTE, there are security concerns, but it looks like those have been bypassed. What was interesting is for ZTE to get to not have the ban continue, they agreed to pay a billion dollars in fines and restitution, Ooh. replace its executives, and be scrutinized by a U.S.-appointed monitors. So basically, they did. They couldn't have done more 
to yeah. try to be more transparent. And hopefully that benefits all involved. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting to see how these things can help again with some of the technology developments that we've been talking about, as well as just raw materials. Steel, we need steel. We don't mm-hmm. make enough of it here. We're never yeah. going to. So easing up the tariffs there seems to make a lot of sense. One of the big parts of this steel and aluminum tariff story is that the British also agreed to lift retaliatory tariffs on whiskey, on U.S. exported <sighs> whiskey. Yeah. Thank you. So uh, I was actually, I was reading the story, missed that part. And uh, at the bottom, it says, American whiskey producers welcomed the resolution to the trade standoff. I'm like, You're what like, does whiskey have to do with steel and aluminum? Why? They're like yeah. they're Jack Daniels in London, I guess. Oh, man, that's right. Um, I'm sure they do. Anna, uh, your thoughts on these two stories and how they might uh, impact the industry? Yeah, I think Jeff's right. I mean, like uh, the more access we have to some of these supplies, the better for pricing. I mean, people are getting killed right now because there's nothing available. Um, mm. Obviously, contractors are dealing with these building materials issues big time. Um, and that's just created kinks everywhere from commercial construction to new home starts and all that stuff. So um, anytime we have more access to more affordable materials for that, I think is good. I think Jeff's right. And um, and the ZTE thing, uh, TBD, I don't know. I mean, it's <laughs> yeah. hard to know if those fears of security issues were overblown, if that was, you know, politicking and it was just a... Or if that was like legitimate, something we need to be concerned about. So we'll see. Yeah, I think there was a lot of politics involved there. But at the end of the day, we got what we wanted, which was greater transparency from this company mm-hmm. that if they wanted, could have been a very, could have been a huge security concern. Sure. Mm-hmm. But the fact that they are allowing a U.S. board to basically go in there and have visibility into what they're doing, that should alleviate those concerns while still opening up um, commerce to some U.S. companies. Anna, let's... Finish up in case you missed it with you. What was your in case you missed it uh, story this week? All right. This story is a little bit tangential to what we typically cover, but it has to do with a beverage company, Red Bull, which I know everyone's heard of, um, and their marketing strategy. So Red Bull has another extreme stunt on schedule for next month. And over the years, this company has sponsored an array of really outrageous stunts um, in the name of marketing, including like a world record snowmobile jump of 412 feet mm-hmm. and a race car um, ascending Pikes Peak at 87 miles per hour. Yeah. Um, they did one where a guy was like on, um, you know, at the Paris Paris hotel in Las Vegas, mm-hmm. a motorcycle and like went to the, uh, I can't remember what the other building was, but like oh. just this motorcycle leap that he said he got like a million dollars for it. And he said it, w- it was not worth it. He would never do it again. <laughs> like he was fine, but yeah. um, it sounds like it was a terrifying experience. I mean, they also did this. They also did the skydive from space. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so they do a lot of this kind of crazy stuff and, and you know, it's live streamed and people watch with bated breath. But yeah, exactly. All up. Yes. So this next one might be like one of the. Biggest and best, or maybe the worst. I don't know. We'll see how it turns out. But on April 24th, Hulu is going to live stream the newest sponsored stunt um, where two skydivers and pilots who are very accomplished happen to be cousins. I don't know. Of course. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They are flying to an elevation of 14,000 feet in Red Bull branded planes, at which point they are planning to cut their engines, attempt to exit, switch planes, and then take control of each other's nose diving aircraft. Whoa. Dicey. <laughs> um, Who thinks this stuff up? I don't know. Red, but man, people I, jacked up on Red Bull. Ex- well, exactly. So, <laughs> which which brings me to my my point, I guess, is which is, you know, it's all very interesting and people eat it up and love to watch it, right? But, mm-hmm. like, what happens to Red Bull if their brand st- strategy, like, like, ever goes awry on this? Like, what happens if somebody dies? Like, what, you know, and it's very public. I don't it's know. It's live like, streamed. Right. Yeah. It's live streamed and like their their brand, like it's an energy drink. So people kind of I mean, I've seen studies that say like drinking mass quantities of energy drinks like makes people prone to riskier behavior um, oh. or violent behavior even oh. um, take it with a grain of salt. Right. But mm-hmm. uh, so they're almost tied to what they're doing in, in one sense. Right. People equate Red yeah. Bull with with this at this point. Yeah. Like so. If and when, if uh, God willing, nothing, you know, like happens. Right. But like, what if something did 
Is that something that they can recover from? Is that something that will impact them? A serious question. I don't I think, know. I mean, my thought is that it's something they could recover from because they've built this brand on extreme sports and knowing the danger. You can watch anything on the Red Bull channel and anything from mountain biking down incredible slopes to these extreme stunts. And you know that they're all very dangerous and it mm-hmm. could have uh, a very severe consequence for people that, you know, people get severely injured and like paralyzed all the time on these things. And right. so I think that the based on how they've built up the brands like around this danger, mm-hmm. it's almost part of it. Whereas, I mean, yeah. but then again, thinking about the imagery of two Red Bull branded planes crashing into the air. Uh, Earth, it would be uh, horrifying. Live TV would be terrible. It would be horrifying. Yeah. Yeah, I think there'd be two different reactions. I think from the more casual Red Bull advocate yeah. um, drinker, I think obviously they'd be mortified that this happened. Would it make them take a backseat in terms of thinking about if they use this or a different yeah, energy drink? A monster, yeah. maybe. But I think for like the real enthusiasts, the ones who are all about the extreme sports, quite honestly, if something bad happened, that might even bring them closer to this brand. Yeah. Because yeah. it just demonstrates the. I hate using this word, the extreme nature of what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, their branding has been that good has yeah. been that successful and sort of tying everybody to that mentality. Mm-hmm. No, I uh, completely agree. And this is also, I find it fascinating because they're, they are pilots, but they're also skydivers. Right. And so part of that makes me feel better about it, that if something goes awry, they could bail and they're, you know, right. maybe would know how to survive if something went bad. But I don't know. Anytime I see a new extreme stunt, it's just like, ah, I don't think so, Mm-mm. but I'm going to watch it. No, I am fear, not. My fear of heights does not allow me to watch it. You're afraid of heights? Oh, terrible. Oh, man. Hate it. I love skydiving. It's, uh, I mean, I wouldn't maybe do this, but, uh, just some real heavy size from production over there. It's a big, yeah. Our producers sorry. are, are I got, not down. I got thrown by the heavy size. So we either apologize for boring everybody out there or somebody's <laughs> just getting tired. Yikes. Um, or maybe skydiving's not for everybody. You know, it's all right. Yeah, I couldn't do it. Good for you, man. No, it's uh, it's good. I'm not, it's been, it's been some years. <laughs> Actually, I think that I might be able to do that because you kind of just get pushed out of the plane. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's a one, yeah, it's, it's a one it's way It's ticket. more, it's not the, Whenever they show that stuff, it's not like when they're going down. It's more when they're just looking down and you're like, oh. especially like I was talking before, the guy on the cell phone tower, that just. Oh, yeah. Ugh. When you look out, when, so when they open the door and you look out, you're just like, I'm not supposed to be doing this. Right. But uh, then when you jump out, you go into shock and your body just paralyzes. So nothing really matters. No. Uh, but then the second time when you know what you're doing. Oh, my God. <laughs> you just, you know, you look at the altimeter and when it hits the orange, you pull the thing and boom. See, for me, I this is how my brain works. If I were doing it, I would just be like the whole time. I would not enjoy it. I would just be like, OK, when do I pull the cord? When do I pull the cord? When do I pull? <laughs> like yeah. the entire way down? And then I would just be like, I, I wouldn't even look at the trees or anything. Yeah, no, it's the fr- the first time it is. You're literally like I. I was in shock. I feel like everyone is in shock the first time because you're just taking it all in. It, it's, um, it's a completely new experience, and your brain is trying to process it and doing a poor job of it. And then you know uh, when you're doing a tandem jump, the guy's on your back and he's just like smacking your hand, like look at your gauge. And I'm just like, why is he hitting me? This is amazing. And then he like keeps tapping your side where he's just like, this is the cord you're supposed to pull right here, right here. And he just keeps smacking me. And I'm like. This is amazing. <laughs> and he finally just pulls the cord and I'm like, oh, that's what he meant. That's what he meant. <laughs> just, and we came in pretty hot. Like, yeah, uh, and then he gets back. He's like, you know what this idiot was doing? I kept hitting him like yeah. a dozen times and he wouldn't pull the cord. Oh, he told me. He was just like, he's like, yeah, I was smacking your wrist. I'm like, I know. I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> completely lost. Like this, like the two hours of training we did, I completely lost on the way down. Sorry, bud. Uh <laughs> So yeah, you actually, were not selected to do this for Red Bull. I no, no, no. I didn't. Uh, I didn't meet the requirements mm-hmm. of a Luke Akins and Andy Farrington. Man, that's see, I actually almost went to Airborne School, and I know most people in the army say, "Yeah, I almost did it. I was going to do it." I actually was, mm-hmm. but my enlistment came up, and I was not going to reenlist. But if I would have, mm-hmm. they would have sent me to Airborne School. Really? And the big thing there is, is with the training that you get, and this is according to anybody who's gone through it. By the time you actually jump out of the plane, you've done so much practice and so much repetition. It's just like walking 
Yeah, mm-hmm. basically. We did not. I think it's a little scarier than that, but we did not have that type of intensive training. Like you walked in, went through like a simulated uh, plane door made out of plywood. And they're like, all right, so you jump, and then when do you pull it? Orange, good, certified, get on the plane. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but, you know, maybe it's, it's come, come around. I gotta do, we got to do it again. we got to make sure I get under that weight requirement, though. Don't want to pay that tax <laughs> for that heavier shoot. All right. <clears throat> Before we get out of here, let's move on to our final thoughts. Uh, Jeff, I'll start with you. Nope, because you're going to do trivia. And I'll start with you. Okay. What's your final thought this week? Um, well, as you mentioned earlier, I mentioned as well, um, I'm taking a road trip with my kids for the first time since pre-pandemic. And I'm super excited slash extremely nervous about what my three children will, the toll it will take on me emotionally for, <laughs> as they, <laughs> I don't know, like a nine hours in the car if we can handle it. I mean, I got a lot of fruit snacks. I think that I'm ready. Um, we got a lot of like fun stuff to do in the car. Mm-hmm. Some like little magnet puzzles and stuff. I don't know. We'll see. Do you have the like one or two days built in on the back end to, to like let yourself decompress? Oh, for sure. Or are you just, you're not jumping right back into work? The I don't day? do it any other way than that. Okay. Yep. That's the only way. How far is it? Like, where are you going? Branson. Okay. Right on. Yeah. So it's like eight and a half hours from where we are and um, we're going to do the trip out in two days or maybe three to four. And that's why we'll see what happens. Yeah. That's that's (laughs) why just get there and turn around. (laughs) I mean, that's why we're a little early today. We got your, you're racing against another squall. Another squall, everyone. Mm -hmm. Another squall warning is coming and I have to get out out of town before it hits. (laughs) Never once in our lifetime. And now two times in a month we're fighting squalls. Both on podcast day. Yeah. Also, weather's not real. Just like, just it's snowing. It's not a, it's not a squall. Just like you're gonna see some snow, light flurries. All right. Uh, my final thought is just I don't have any plans this weekend. And the fact that uh, uh, you and then producer Eric are headed out of town just seems mm-hmm. like a logistical nightmare. Because I struggle just to get the kids in a wagon to a park. So we're gonna call it a win if I can do that. Let alone like. Seeing whether or not they can survive many hours in a car, or any of us could. Uh, so, you know, for those of you not that ambitious, think think of us. Take it easy. Yeah. <laughs> take it easy this weekend. Well, and seeing you guys are in places where small kids, that's the logistical challenges involved there. So my one daughter was on spring break this week. The other two are next week. They don't want to do anything with me. Mm-hmm. So I get to do stuff that I haven't done in a while, like go pheasant hunting on Sunday. Oh, so nice. nice. I'm in the total like polar opposite spot of you guys. Uh, the only other thing I wanted to add is that uh, we did have somebody leave the IEN team today and wanted to just say uh, goodbye and good luck to Mike Hockett. It was a pleasure working with you. Um, Jeff, what do you got for us on trivia this week? So trivia, we again only had one correct answer. Really? Congrats was to Mark Marina? again. Oh, Mark. Um, the question last week again was when you're giving the Heimlich, there is three situations in which you would do a chest compression instead of the stomach or abdominal compression. Those three conditions are if the individual with a blocked airway is overweight, pregnant, or has an abdominal wound. Mm. Okay. So yeah. in those three cases, go to the chest, not the stomach. Wait, I thought it was if it's a kid too. No. No, oh. when I said baby, Jeff said meant, yeah. Oh, okay. He was talking about being pregnant, someone being pregnant. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. There were other good answers. I'm assuming if somebody was unconscious, maybe that is mm. the better route to go. Sure. Those are the three that I was going for based on my book of common skills from 2003. Common oh, right. skills. Soldier skills from 2003. Following up, another trivia question from the IET uh, common task booklet here. Basically, when you are treating somebody for a heat injury, heat stroke, just oh. overheating, mm-hmm. whatever the case may be, one of the steps is to loosen tight clothing. Helps cool them down, helps improve circulation, all of those things. Okay. Now, whether it's a combat environment or really an industrial one, there is one situation where you would not want to loosen those clothes. Mm-hmm. You'd want to keep everything buttoned up. Okay. What is that one situation? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so someone's definitely having trouble handling the heat. They could be mm-hmm. just dehydrated. They could be, it could be more severe than that. It could be heat stroke or something like that. First thing you want to loosen everything up, except... In one situation. So it's like like just heat stroke or being hot, not like fire, right? Right. Not on fire, okay. just having difficulty <laughs> handling the heat well, and hot I'm temperature. Not, maybe not on fire, maybe like post on fire. I don't, 
anyway, that would be a burn. Yeah, <laughs> it's called that'd be that'd be different. We wouldn't be worrying about clothes if they would just been on fire. Well, Jeff, it's called post on fire. It's post not on fire. burn. I don't. Where'd you get that word? They're in a post fire situation. <laughs> All right. Um, what a way to end what it. What was the question again? <laughs> so, <laughs> when don't you take off the clothes? When don't when don't you loosen tight clothing? Okay, for a heat injury. How loose are we talking? Like take it off? No, just loosen. Okay. Okay. Man. All right. I are you like the lawyer of the crew here? You're just making sure everything is legally like I just, clear. You know, I got to wrap my head around it so that way when my answer's wrong, I know that I had all the information possible. Yeah, and you, still you are got it not going to get one of those hats when they come in. No, we got a, we got a list, and you are no, not on it. I have kept up my end of never getting a trivia question right. <laughs> it's been I've been going strong since what, how long have we been doing this? Twelve weeks now. A little more, net. Okay. No, the trivia. Oh, just the trivia. Yeah. yeah that's probably all right. <laughs> We're on episode 60. How long have we been doing this? No. <laughs> about 12 years. About 60 weeks, David. All right. <clears throat> well, before we get out of here, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You can also help the podcast out by leaving us a positive review, Anna. We only want positive only reviews. Only positive reviews. <laughs> on whatever platform you use. Finally, if you want to contact us, you can reach any of us at Jeff, David, or Anna at IEN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. If there is a negative review, just send it to David. Just a direct DM. (laughs) Yeah, that would be fine. And I'll respond in kind. (laughs) (laughs) Finally, if you want to make sure that you get the podcast to your inbox first, you can subscribe to our daily and weekly newsletters. And if you do have any critical feedback, please send that to David at IEN.com. All right. For Jeff and Anna... I'm David Manti. This is the Today in Manufacturing podcast. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast.